This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by AXA Equitable Life. That's AXA.com. Advice, retirement, and life insurance. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is David Burkus. He's a best-selling author, speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. He's also the author of a book we're going to talk about today, Friend of a friend, understanding the hidden networks that can transform your life and your career. So, David, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, how's that university gig work out? Is that you know, as a as a author speaker, is that you know, is that a good like little side gig? You know, it's funny you say side gig. That's actually um, exactly how I described it to a student maybe about two years ago. So. Um, when my second book came out, I got sort of cr- crazy busy in that spring season. And um, I think I went an entire week. I was supposed to teach a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. And I think I went an entire week without seeing them just because I was running all around. And then maybe like a week and a half after, one of the students was sort of pushing back on why I'd been gone for so long. And he goes, yeah, and why are you even gone? Like, what's that side gig thing that you do? And I looked at him dead in the face and I said this. This is my side gig, right? What I'm doing out there is my full-time thing. And and that's actually been the case. So that that semester, everything sort of came to a head. And so I came to them and asked about, I'm sort of on a semi-permanent sabbatical. I, t- I teach one class a semester. I still have my appointment and time and rank and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, I don't get paid for full-time. I get paid for the one class a semester um, that I teach. And so it feels much more like a side gig now. So now it's pretty much... Uh, Monday afternoons, I know where I'm going to be. I like, I have lunch on campus and then I'm there until I teach my class and that uh, I teach at four 30, um, cause it's for the MBA students and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, that's it. And then the rest of the week, including today, um, I barely think about it unless someone asks me what it's like. So this has nothing to do with the book we're going to talk about, but I'm curious, <laughs> fine. do you as a writer speaker, do you find that you're that world that you play in? a lot brings information to the student group or do you sometimes find that interacting with students and what they're thinking, doing, feeling brings stuff to your writing? So it's probably a little bit of both. My, the biggest benefit that I like about it is that I get the chance to test out ideas. So you know, my, my background's in organizational behavior. All of my books are very sort of social science based. And so the real challenge as a writer is pairing that with the right case study, the right example, the right what have you. And so I'm doing all of that research for, for a book, but then if I'm lecturing on that exact same topic, I can throw that story in, see what the reaction is. Does it make sense? Does it not? Those sort of things. So having that kind of built-in test market has been really cool. The the other way that it's been helpful to go the other way, and this is less of the time, but this happens as well, is I run a daily little YouTube kind of two to three minute tip every single weekday. And a good amount of the the tips now, <laughs> the goal was to do it every single day. And now that we're like nine months in, you, you get a little dry. And so, and so a lot of student questions, follow-up questions, well, wait a minute, why does this have to be the case, et cetera, then provoke ideas for, oh, that would be a great clip. So let me, let me write that down real quick. I feel bad because I teach um, undergrads and MBA students and we're very sort of, you know, no technology because we don't want you texting in the middle of class, what have you. But when moments like that happen, I literally take out my phone and open up a little notes file and put it in. So I feel bad because I'm clearly not practicing what I preach there, but it, it works. So uh, in the subtitle, uh, understanding the hidden networks that can transform your life and your career. Um, let's define what a hidden network is. Yeah. So this is a, a term we kind of used 
to describe the people in your network that a lot of us overlook, right? So most of us, I mean, even when I say the word networking, most of us think it's about converting strangers into, you know, friends or into prospects or into however we're, we're using the term. And so we think about our close contacts, the people that we see every day or every week, the people that we're regularly doing business with, our current clients, all, all of that sort of thing. And then we think networking, we think right to those strangers. And what we ignore are the people that are the, the term in social science is, is uh, weak or dormant ties. And we ignore those people that are one or two degrees of separation out. And if you look at where a lot of the new opportunity comes in, yes, strangers are going to have new information, new ideas, new potential referrals, um, new needs themselves that you might be able to fit, but you've got to sort of warm up, build rapport with them. It's that middle network, that hidden network, hidden because a lot of us are overlooking it, where there is just as many new and different pieces of information like a total stranger um, unlike your close contacts, but there is either a, they already know you or they know someone who knows you. They're that friend of a friend. And so building rapport with them is a whole lot easier. So we find in that network, you get a whole lot more value. And I usually define networking now as just paying attention to your close contacts and those people in that hidden network, dormant ties and people that are one or maybe two degrees of separation out from you. And if you do that well enough, you never have to go to a networking mixer or something like that ever again. Well, I think one of the challenges some some folks are having with that is because, you know, I completely agree, but I, you know, I was accepting some uh, connection requests on LinkedIn today and I noticed I have 13,000 um, first tier connections, which means I must have, what, a million second tier connections? I mean, yeah. How, I, it's almost like the online world theoretically made that easier, but it really made it much harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it did. And and one of the things that we talk about right in the very o I mean, opening chapter of the book is like, I, I, I pushed back on my editor a lot for writing about any technology. And I, and I openly say in the intro, like I, I can't teach you how to use uh, Twitter properly. And I can't teach you what the perfect rules for LinkedIn are. Cause I'm sure you've guessed this too. Every, everybody uses a little bit differently and everybody has a different definition of what they count as connection. And so I often say that technology should be a supplement to, not a replacement for your existing face-to-face -face network. So my my definition of connection and the one that we use in uh, a lot of network science studies is do you know them in real life, not just foreign? So for example, John, unfortunately you and I, we're, we're, not, we're still friend of a friend connections because we haven't had that in-person thing. And, and everybody uses tools like that a little bit differently. The irony though is even if you shrunk it down to your connections or people that you've met or you've worked on a a project with people that you are part of that face-to-face -face network, that one or two degrees of separation is still, uh, you're still talking about millions of people. And so learning how to kind of navigate it and ask the right questions when you go out to that network becomes a really important thing as well. Well, and I, I do think that, you know, I was, I was on in the early days of social media and I do think that, that, you know, the initial phase was get lots of followers, get lots of friends, make lots of connections. Isn't this great? And then I think people kind of looked up and went, oh, crap, I, I can't manage this anymore. And I think a lot of people have really turned to that idea of, OK, I'm going to use LinkedIn, just as you said, to really have real connections, but then, you know, make sure that it's manageable numbers rather than just big numbers. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I I think everybody has to set their own rules. And so I because of the work that I do kind of treat LinkedIn as a as a content as a platform that people can consume content that I'm putting out on there. So we put the video on there. We do articles on there and what have you. So even my rules are a little bit different. But I did a very similar thing 
with uh, Facebook, similar, basically now actually they work really, really similar, except one's full of puppy photos and political memes and the other is full of real business stuff. Um, but I went from probably 1,800 or 2,000 contacts in, in or friends in Facebook to less than 150. I, I And actually every year, it's become a joke with the 150 or so that are still around. Every year I do a Christmas purge. So the day after Christmas, I sit down and go through. It takes me two or three days because I don't want to. I don't want to spend six hours doing it. I just kind of. Um, I do a little bit at a time. But my goal is by New Year's to have looked at everyone's profile and and asked myself the question: Do I still want to see them in my newsfeed, and do I still want them to see my stuff in their newsfeed? And so I go through kind of every year and do that to treat that network that way because otherwise it's sort of overwhelming, right? I, I, absolutely. I, I actually heard somebody. I thought this was interesting advice. They said that their approach was. That they, you know how Facebook tells you it's David's birthday today. Did you go through then you go, if I, I don't want to say happy birthday to that person necessarily in person, you know, they're gone. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, I, I go even deeper actually. So, um, cause I'll say happy birthday to lots of people. My question is actually, do I want you to see pictures of my kids? Cause what, what happened is my first book came out before we had children. I was building the whole platform. And so I was connecting with everybody, whoever, just, you know, you never know where it's going to go type of thing. And then like my, it wasn't actually my firstborn. I didn't notice it too much. But my, my secondborn, candidly, we spent a long time in the NICU and we're posting these sort of updates that are actually fairly emotional. And then like a random person that saw me speak in Cleveland is typing a message on there. And I'm just sort of like, I know you mean well, but this makes me uncomfortable. So I'm clearly going to have to do something about this. So that's become my question. I've, I've heard other people do similar questions. Like, um, I was, I've, I'm forgetting who it is, but I was talking to somebody that chooses to prune LinkedIn on the basis of would I give this person $20 knowing I'm never going to get paid back. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of people in my life that I would be like, yeah, I'll lend you $20 knowing that. I mean, John, I'd lend you $20 knowing I'm never going to get paid back. Right. But it's not that big. There's not that many people in the world that I would do that for. This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by AXA Equitable Life. It's time we start giving life insurance the credit it deserves. That's because life insurance can be so much more than protection for you and your family. It also helps you live, keep, and potentially build more cash value over time. To learn more, go to AXA.com. So let's uh, talk about another concept that I think is central to this, and that's the and, – and others have, have – I mean, I think this has become a common sort of term in in networking circles, but this idea of super connectors. So what I think is interesting is they they play an interesting role and they don't play the role we expect. So from a from a strict network science side, and then I'll flip over to kind of what this means, especially for entrepreneurs from a strict network science side. We thought that super connectors, the people who had a disproportionate number of connections, if you were to if you were to ask everybody in an industry, for example, how many people they know and you graphed it, you wouldn't get an inverted U, you'd get a power law, you'd get an 80-20 principle, right? So 20% of the people have 80% of the, or, or at least are connected to 80% of the people in a network and we call them super connectors. And for the longest time, we thought that super connectors were the people that that kept the network together, the, the people that explained that everybody is only five or six introductions away from each other. I mean, we thought Kevin Bacon was a super connector, right? Because everybody in film can be connected to him. The interesting thing is that's not the case. It's actually, I mean, again, to go back to those weak and dormant ties, every one of us has those. We've all changed jobs or moved cities or what have you. So there's so much, the super nerdy term is resiliency in the network that super connectors don't do that. What they do do is, is when you, you investigate where they come from, you find this other 
really interesting principle, which is the principle of preferential attachment. And that's this idea that over time, as you gain more connections, as you're better known inside of the network, more organic connections come to you, right? The most connected people in a community are usually going to be the ones that are most likely to meet new members into that community, which makes sense, right? If you're the person everybody knows, you have a better chance of getting those introductions. Why I like this is for your average person, whether you're sort of a, a newbie entrepreneur, you're somebody looking for your career, whatever you're looking for, we all look to those people that just seem to know everybody that seem to get business coming. We're struggling to come to find new clients and they're just getting natural organic leads coming in all of the time. That's preferential attachment at work. The difference is usually they've put in that work for a number of years ahead of time to build up all of those contacts. So it, it, it kind of explains why networking appears to be so easy to some people and why we struggle. What it also says is that it holds out the promise that like if you put in the work and you put in the attention, you can build that same thing. You can roll that snowball down the hill and get to that point as well. I don't know that everybody can be a super connector, but everybody can leverage preferential attachment that the more you're being intentional about your connections and your network, the more potential new connections come in. That ties back to our weak <laughs> ties, right? I mean, because one of the things I'm envisioning people thinking is, oh, okay, you're right. I've got all these weak ties out there. I should go start selling them something. Um, and, <laughs> and, and it really, you know, obviously, and, and we've all gotten that email. I'm a friend of David. Oh, Burns. I've gotten that LinkedIn record. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so how do you actually effectively, knowing they're there and knowing that they're powerful, how do you effectively approach and engage them? So, so two strategies are maybe the same strategy in a, in a twofold thing, but that everybody can put into place. The, the first is to have a system where weak ties are getting regularly checked in with, right? If you haven't talked to somebody in 18 months, it is not the right time to try and sell them something, right? But it is the right time to let them know that you remember them and you still care about them. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do this. My, my favorite is sort of social media arbitrage. We've been talking about a little bit, but that is that everyone is so overwhelmed that what you can do is find a more valuable means of communication. So you see that somebody is posting this new thing. Like I, I have a good friend that just announced on on um, Facebook that he and his wife are, are expecting, right? And the guy's got like 4,000 uh, connections. And so if I just click like or comment, that's going to get lost. So the better way to do it is you find that information that a weak tie is broadcasting and you send them a more private message. In this case, I send them a text message, right? And what that does is it, it resets what I call the, the clock, the stopwatch of awkwardness, right? Because the longer a period of time you go between interacting with a weak tie, the more awkward it will get that next time. So it resets that clock, and if that's all you do, now you've built a connection where they don't feel awkward reaching back out to you. If you need something, you don't feel awkward reaching out to them. So that can be three months, six months, a year. It depends on the connection, but that's sort of step one. And then step two is I very rarely find situations where where all of those weak ties that people have assembled are perfect clients. And so I usually find that you've got to go into that one degree of separation out, that friend of a friend network to find that. And the most common questions I, I coach people to, to ask are, who do you know in blank, with blank being that industry or that city or what, whatever it is you're trying to find people in? Or a similar spin on that question is, who do you know that's at at blank, which is basically a stage of life. So for example, I mean, this is a terrible example, but if you sold cars, right, the wrong question to ask is, who do you know that's looking for a car? Because everybody's going to feel weird. But if you ask, who do you know that, is, I mean, is expecting a new child? Because that means you're going to have to rethink your car situation, right? 
or even in business, who, who do you know that is, is, um, growing their business rapidly. And is at that point where they can't really, there's certain systems that they can't really just do on pen and paper anymore. Oh, well we sell this CRM system or, or whatever it is. You find a way to ask who do you know in that is in a certain stage. And then if you're the solution stage, that can be a potential referral. The reason I like who do you know is that it gives you usually a list of two or three names. And this is really key. It gives you a list of two or three names that that person would be comfortable introducing you to. Because if they wouldn't be comfortable introducing you to them, they'll just not list them in those names. And that works a whole lot more effectively than sort of LinkedIn stalking a prospective client and then trying to trace your way back to find the right introduction to them. That's, that's just an awkward mess. Well, and I think you actually do that person a favor too. I get these all the time that I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they, they're like, let me know if there's any way I can help you. You know, these are requests on LinkedIn. And I was like, well, I don't know what you do. <laughs> I, right. I don't know who you are. I have no way that I could tell you how you could help me. And I think that's a lot of times when people aren't specific about a way in which they could do something or what they're actually looking for. Um, I, I think they make it, it's now the universe is potential. And I think that makes it tough. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And so when you, when you cut it into, okay, this is, this is the type of person I'm looking for a prospective client, new hire. I, I have a lot of people that do this with companies. So I'm looking to work at this company. Who do you know that, that works there or works in that industry to at least get me closer? It's a good way to throw that question out. And it's, it's less vague. And I think it, it, it goes the other way too with us, right? So the weirdest thing about that, how can I help you question is like, whatever I say, the odds that you're going to have that knowledge, skill or ability are really small. But you might know somebody who does, right? I, I don't, I have a friend who's having a baby. I don't know anything about having a baby, but I've got a friend who's a prenatal doctor. Like, and if you need someone to talk to you about, about vitamins, I can connect you. One of the problems, of course, that I think we probably don't recognize, and this isn't just in networks. I mean, this, this happens in your community. <laughs> um, and that is the concept of homophily. Did I say that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the, the idea that you tend to hang around with people that are like you and think like you and look like you. And, and that's not always a good thing. So, and in fact, used, uh, used, uh, our presidential, uh, last presidential election as kind of a way to illustrate that. So yeah, people love to hate that part of the. Well, no, I mean, really, re regardless of how you feel, I I I'll put this out there, and even this we're going to get angry letters about, so I apologize. Regardless of how you feel about any of the four candidates, right, well, I won't even limit this to two, the, the consensus by a lot of people now two years out looking at that election is that uh, Hillary Clinton lost that election more than Donald Trump won it, right? And there's a lot of jokes about ignoring Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I, ironically, these are the Michael Moore states. These are the states that uh, 12 months before the actual election, Michael Moore was warning people about saying that if you're if you shifted too far to the coast in the big cities and you're ignoring that kind of Rust Belt union vote that normally goes blue, it'll flip red. And that's kind of precisely what happened from the campaign headquarters in uh, in Brooklyn. The team had models that said, we're going to win Michigan. We're going to we don't have to go to Wisconsin and we're going to win Wisconsin. And that didn't happen. And, you know, th that's one example. And it was a salient example. And it was me attempting to hit a nerve of emotion. So people talk about that example. But history is full of that. Business history is full of executives making terrible decisions because they had limited information. We, we go back into further presidential history. We have things like the Bay of Pigs and and the entire sort of groupthink fiasco that came out of that. And the, the reason is quite simply that homophily idea that it's not just that we like people who are similar to us. In, in fact, that's actually the, the smaller part of it. 
the big part of it is those new connections. Most of us aren't intentional. Most of us are just organic about how we make new connections and how we meet new people. And the problem is that those people are going to be really similar to the people we already know. So unless we're intentionally looking for people that are different from us, the network is not going to serve them to us. We could be out there thinking I'm really connected. So I clearly have all of this information and not realize that we're ignoring whole segments of our target population. I, I had a friend or a connection request on LinkedIn the other day, and it said that we had like 675 mutual connections. I had absolutely no idea who this person was. I mean, how is that possible? <laughs> Well, I mean, again, if you look at the research, so we like to joke about six degrees of separation, but it's been proven multiple times. I've never seen a study done through LinkedIn, although ironically they should do this in, in Facebook that the, the two billion people that are members of Facebook are connected by four. It's a, it's like 4.2 potential introductions on average, right? So I like to, I actually think of that not as, you know, because depending on your reaction to the story I just told, you may or may not want to be six introductions away from the president. But I look at it as that idea that the network is so vast and interconnected that there are millions, tens of millions. I like to, pretty much everyone that is in your professional network or that's going to have an influence on your career these days is either a friend already or they're a friend of a friend. And that's good news if you can do it with some intentionality and authenticity. If you're trying to be that kind of weirdo spammer, I think it's actually bad news because people are going to get tired of your thing faster. So we've already, you've already kind of um, bashed the idea of networking mixers and, and I, I've not played in that pool for a long, long time. And so I don't even know if they're that popular, but I really loved your, um, I don't think it was a whole chapter, but this idea of a different way, instead of just going and saying, hi, I'm David, you know, nice to meet you. Um, this idea of sharing activities. I thought, I, I think that's actually to me, probably my favorite part of the book about how to, and, and it wouldn't even just be networking. I mean, I think that's just a better way maybe to meet friends, <laughs> you know? Oh, I, well, I, I agree, but I, I'm also kind of of the opinion now that like everyone, even professional contacts, we should put in the friend bucket anyway, right? So, um, yeah, so shared activities, I mean, the, the gist of it is that we know from research and human behavior that people don't actually mix at these mixers. The networking hour at that conference, the meetup that you saw advertised and so you showed up to it, the, the I mean, literal sort of speed networking things, People spend most of their time with people that they already know. And even when they're meeting new people, they usually stick to a script of, of who are you and what do you do and, and then immediately try and figure out, are you a prospect or can I help you or that sort of thing. And because of that, we don't really get to understand the multi facets of people. And so these shared activities, a shared activity is a term coined by Brian Uzi that, and Sharon Dunlap that deals with specific activities that draw diverse sets of new people where there's three components to it, where there is an objective other than just knowing people. So in the book, we talk about dinner parties and the idea that you can cook together. That's one objective. I was just working with a group uh, last week that really sees their charity work. So they have Habitat for Humanity, they plan a 5K, all of that as shared activities that draw people from throughout the company. It can be anything where there is that objective. That objective requires interdependence. So one person can't do all of the work. And then there are stakes to not achieving that objective. That gets people sort of emotionally involved. They have to be involved. They have to be interdependent in order to achieve that objective. And what we find is you build deeper relationships faster with someone when you put all of that, who are you and what do you do, perfect elevator pitch stuff to the side, and you focus in on that objective, you end up having different conversations, conversations where you find 
the fancy term is uncommon commonalities with people, stuff that you have in common with them that you never would have expected. And you end up meeting people that are more different than you, than you would meet if you were just at this networking event, trusting your script to lead you to the right person. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that could be, you know, Comic-Con. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you find these people that you never would meet anywhere else, but you have this shared connection. And I think that that's, you know, that's, there's so much more potential in that going beyond the sort of, I've got my armor up, you know, that yeah. happens at a networking event. Oh no, I have, I mean, my, it's not Comic-Con, but my weird esoteric fact is I've, I've trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a martial art for the last 14 years. And when you find someone, even if like you're getting the weirdest vibe from them ever, and then you find out that you have that in common, suddenly you're like, ah, oh, now you're friends, right? The only thing I can compare it to is, is if you've ever traveled to a foreign country and you hear an American accent, even if they're from Texas and you're from New York, it's suddenly like, oh, you're an American. You're like, oh, we're, we have this thing in common. And it only matters because it's uncommon compared to the people around you. David, uh, where can people find out more about Friend of a Friend and and your work? I know you've got some. Uh, I know you've got the book on your site. Yeah, well, I have it on my site, but I'll tell you, if you listen to this show, the best place to find out more about it is the show notes for this episode, because um, we'll link to all that. And, and John wants you to go to those anyway. My website's davidburkus.com, but the easiest thing to do is is do what John wants and check out the show notes for this episode because he wants to know you care. Man, can you just? Can you come on the last five minutes of every podcast episode that I do? Can I do that? Because sometimes I even forget to ask. We will definitely have it in the show notes. We love those reviews. We want you to buy David's book. How's that? I love it. Love it. That's perfect. You you plug my book. I'll plug your show notes and leave a rating and review. It helps them spread the word about the show and it helps them know you're listening. Yeah, absolutely. And I went to the University of Kansas and uh, did you go to Oral Roberts or is that? So I went as I wasn't an undergrad to Oral Roberts and I went to grad school at the University of Oklahoma. So we have seen each other on the field of play many times. Well, and I think our basketball coach did a stint at Oral Roberts. Didn't Bill Self yeah. coach yep. at Oral Roberts? That's what I thought. Yes, he did. It's kind of yep. where he got his start, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then he went back over to Oklahoma State, I think, where he was an undergrad. So. Yep. Enough of that nonsense. David, it was great <laughs> great catching up with you and uh, hope to see you uh, soon out there on the road uh, in real yeah. life so that I can actually be considered part of your network. There you go. I love it. I love it. I hope that happens soon, too. We'll talk to you again soon. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. 
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.